David Amin from Proverbial Door. And unfortunately, you're listening to me on uh, the Sass Holes podcast. Who would have thought I'd be in a podcast with that name, but here you are. Welcome to Sass Holes. We are revenue ops with an edge. With decades of making interesting decisions, Jamie, Jason, Marcus, and Pete are dedicated to helping aspiring sales leaders accelerate revenues with our no BS approach to sales leadership strategies and tactics. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. Demandfarm.com. Unlock key account growth with Demand Farm's large deal, key account, and relationship intelligence products. Go to demandfarm.com now to schedule a demo. Ask for Iron Man. Brent Keltner's Winalytics Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass. In five hours over five weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team build the mindset and skills for a new buyer environment. Kick off in product-driven selling versus authentic conversations for all go-to-market teams. Team-level sessions for self-assessment and team dialogue. All go-to-market team wrap-up to identify top go-to-market strategy adjustments. Go to winalytics.com now. We got some shout-outs to do. Lauren Delfino, new gig, Senior Vice President of Practice Growth at RX Advantage. Lance Taylor, two years Backstop Solutions Group. Casey Erlocker, eight years at Englewood Construction. Way to go, Casey. Our old friend, Dave Burkus, 14 years at hundreds of events worldwide. How you doing, Dave? Eileen Huang, three years at Google. She's a good one. Leslie Martin, 17 years at Career Builder. Tecla Pedagogy. 10 years at Career Builder. Marco Alvarez, 5 years at Career Builder. Jordan Netkin, promoted to Senior Technical Consultant at Strata Decision Technology. And our good friend Bill Rosino, got a new gig, Chief Financial Officer at Workforce Software. Ooh, he's a good'un. And we have a happy birthday to James O'Sullivan, another spin around the sun. Neuroscience, huh? Yeah, yeah, I... I noticed your business as well, which is really cool. Yeah, neurofeedback. Yeah, neuro noodle. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. I have a podcast and uh, I have a guy that joins me every week and he's been doing neurofeedback since the early 70s. Mm. He's probably read over half a million EEGs and uh, we, we nerd out every week. I love it. And I think it's I think it's interesting that uh I think some comp some companies are the bigger companies are putting it in their their training programs, their wellness uh programs. Alpha theta training, get their minds ready to uh to be ready to uh to learn to train. Hmm. Uh but it takes so long to have to explain it. It's almost like I want to just, I think there's a big enough market to do the QEEGs and then let somebody out. You, if you want to take a pill, take a pill. Hmm. If, if you want to do yoga, do yoga. Um, but you, it's hard to argue with a uh, QEEG. Yeah. I mean, So here's my challenge with that. Talk to me. And the reason why I know this is because I'm I'm privileged to be married to someone who is a functional medicine expert. And she's 
one of probably 1700 in the world that has that qualification okay um from the cleveland institute and because of that i've i've dived deeper into other aspects of the body further than just the brain um here's the thing when you look at studies around neuroscience of learning right and how we learn and how we learn in an optimal way the brain is probably just one part of so many systems involved in that um the gut the gut absolutely not just not just the gut but but like your your subconscious and all the shit that you've basically got stored in there from past experiences in your life Mm -hmm. and they have a massive impact on on how not only how you absorb information you know understand it and therefore apply it but but even you know the state that you're in to actually understand and perceive what the information is Um, because that perception is going to make a very big, have a very big impact on what you let in. And so, you know, EEGs and fMRIs and all those things, uh, they're good. Don't get me wrong. And, and the problem that the problem is most people don't know how, what to do with it. The leaders don't know how to do what to do with it. You're going to have to explain it to them. They, They kind of, they're going to be cynical about it, even though it's science. You're like, what are you talking about? You, you know, where's your neuroscience background? Oh, I don't have one. Well, why didn't you shut up and just listen to what I have to say, right? Um, and take it in. But there is so much about the gut and and your and other elements of your health and your body as an organism, an interconnected organism, that makes a huge difference in in how in, in how you get to that state, the theta state or the alpha state. Yeah, theta yeah. state's pretty deep, right? I mean, but alpha state, yeah, great. Um, but then what do you do with it? And not only that but how the moments to moments in your life when we're not there how do you treat yourself in a way that makes you the optimal machine for those kind of things as well so it's away from us that's also the other part and and giving people the tools and strategies in order to actually do that when they're not when you're not in in their in the room with them is also really important so uh, you know, I, I love what you're doing. I would say there's also another element there that has oh. a massive implication on, on how you deal with things. Well, it's it's not one thing that caused the symptom and it's not going to be one thing mm. that corrects it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's just, there are different options out there. You start here and work your way. You know, which which one is a less threat to your body? Which one is more natural? Uh, do you believe in neuroplasticity? If you do, um, then you believe in operant conditioning. Can you can you mm. learn a behavior training? The stove is pretty hot. I'm not going to touch that again. Since a good uh, 80% or so, throw a number in there, of the boys in the United States are getting painted with the uh, ADHD brush because mm. they don't know what else to uh, paint it with. Yeah. Here's some Ritalin, here's some Adderall, or you can do a little bit of uh, training and then you can find out half of those aren't anything. Now you may say uh, placebo, you know, if it's placebo and they don't have the symptoms anymore. Okay, great. Then come up with your own placebo. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, totally. Uh, Hey, we can talk about all this during the session because we are There's so much and how this applies to sales and SAS and well, not SAS specifically, Moedamin from Proverbial Door. Thank you for coming on the Sassels podcast. What is Proverbial Door? So Proverbial Door um, 
we're here to help companies capitalize on key moments in the business. And those key moments will be in sales. Um, they will be in investor pitching. They will be in uh, leadership kind of crisis moments. Um, they will be in things like R&D. Um, and we're, we're here to deal with those key moments. And those key moments usually come in the form of how we persuade the people that we need to come on board to join us. And one of the biggest barriers to growth is the inability of people to make sure that the other person understands what it is that you're trying to say. And also, which is really important, is make the other person feel understood, like you understand them. And then together, you understand the direction and the vision for how you're going to get there. That's what we do here at Proposal Door. I was there during the very early, when, when SAS was being in, in the inception of SAS, right? What what was, was the uh, what was the date of that, Moed? Oh, now I I don't know. Okay, inception was a strong word, but the very early <laughs> days. But I remember in two thousand and eight, we were talking about software as a service, um, and it was it was being implemented because companies were trying to figure out a way of reducing their capex expenditure also figure out a way of disaster recovery now and also reduce their insurance liabilities right mm -hmm. um so there were a whole host of reasons why that was happening and it took a while for that to to build up but SaaS was never a business model back then it was a way for us to actually um run our operations more efficiently as well as more cost effectively um, and then it just blew up into this operating like business, like revenue model that everyone seemed to love and investors like because of uh, consistency and predictability. Um, and people say, we're a SaaS company. Well, no, you're fucking not a SaaS company. That's just a delivery mechanism for your value. What right. do you do for the buyer? Right. Um, right. And I had a, and we could talk about all this, right? But I had a client. We are. I'm using all this. Which, yeah, I had a client recently, which we stopped working with, but the founders came to me and said, well, well, actually not even one client. I've had several clients like that. And they said, well, we want to have more of our clients go onto the SaaS products. I was like, why? And then they'll explain to me why. And I said, okay, N nothing in what you described had anything to do with the buyer. You didn't even mention the buyer once. It was all what you wanted because you have an outcome which is to sell your sell your business and you think that the best way to do so is to actually have a SaaS model or another way as you said um reducing customer acquisition cost or cost of operations uh, uh, and my answer was well is SaaS really the answer or is stop pursuing a you know un, um, unaligned or unfit bad fit clients and working with bad fit clients maybe that's your path to uh, improving your customer acquisition cost. Do you do you include Google as SaaS? Google has a well, they have a cloud service, right? They have a cloud product line which they're trying to grow. It's their far, one of their fastest growing. SaaS is basically when they say in, so. My definition of SaaS is in, in in terms of software as a service is we're going to deliver you a piece of software or a platform. Um, it's structured as a service by which you can tap in and out when you need to. It doesn't require capex or, or, or capex expenditure that you have to own and maintain yourself. We do all the maintenance for you. Um, 
Uh, and so, and, 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 you know, everything is in the clouds, right? So everything that right. you do, you don't actually have to have the physical asset in order to do so. Uh, would I term Google as that? One part of their business is, or parts of their business are, but they're an advertising business. So their core business, which makes up for the majority of their revenue is not SaaS, it's an advertising business. Um, and again, I was there very the early days where SEO was being talked about and I was headhunted by a company that uh, would call up businesses and say, hey, we've done a search on your company in Google. We see that you're number 50, uh, you know, pay us enough money um, and we can get you up to, uh, you know, number one. This was back in the days where if you paid and bid for in the right way, then you would get up there. It, it wasn't to do with the quality of your website or any of that stuff back then. It was to do with right. how much you're willing to pay. So no, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't term Google as a, a fully SaaS business because a large part of what they do is advertising. But the services that they have by which you can tap into things like Gmail, you know, workspace, all those things, yes, those are SaaS because it's a software or a platform that you don't have to own physically and maintain. You can just access this and you pay a subscription for it. Company I worked for for a couple of decades, Career Builder, they started off as classified advertising, recruitment advertising. And then I was part of the transition from classified advertising to to software because we wanted to get that uh, recurring revenue, those lovely three year contracts. We wanted to copy the uh, the telephone services, get that nice nice subscription. Mm. And what I what I remember is, let's just say throwing out a number two thousand four two thousand five. You had Microsoft CRM, the mm. worst CRM in the world. Salesforce came out, I want to say 98, 99, somewhere around there. They had something where uh, they give you five free licenses. So they were doing freemium back then to try. The the Microsoft, the software, you had to implement it. You had to get the consultants to come in to do it. And it still couldn't handle the data that you you were putting through it. Mm. By that time, Salesforce came around. To me, that was my first exposure to figuring out what, what SaaS was trying to convert somebody that was used to doing transactions saying, Hey, I know you pay me once a month. I would like to get three, a three-year contract out of you. It was a very interesting uh, discussion for these longtime buyers, taking them from transactional uh, to more, you know, strategic. Did you ever have to go through anything like that? I first started working with uh, a small um, enterprise telecoms business um, where there was large amounts of capex and then there was a you know kind of recurring revenue that you had to pay um, as part of that and then I worked for a company where it was purely subscription based which is the same principle right, right. Um, and then on those subscriptions we would normally say six months or 12 months and then all of a sudden we started talking about three-year contracts with people what I quickly figured out and realized is um the best way to consider why someone would go for a three years is what's in it for them and and what are the so of the four of the four elements of decision making in neuroscience one of one of them is assessing gains and losses um so what are the potential losses or risks for them if they were to go on three years and what would reduce those risks to as close to zero as possible that it made it more sense for them to have a three-year contract than to have a a one-year contract with you so at well, some pro- point in the relationship, it turns. Um, 
but you can't just go into a new pl- a new company and offer a three-year contract and say this is what we do i mean if you said that to a cfo they'd say no go away mate i'll find someone else well then what are the sdrs going to do what if they can't offer? Are they are they really being asked to offer three year or multi year contracts from the get go? Of course they are. Of course they are. Yeah, well, of course they are. So, so well, I, you, you... and I know this from my time in Gartner, right? And and you know you can tell me that, but it's not going to work. Oh, I mean, it's just it's not like... going to work unless unless that buyer has had an incredibly amazing recommendation or referral from someone that they admire and trust that's worked with you. But then now you've you've reduced that risk element. Now now it kind of. But even then, they might be like, oh, no, no. It depends on the macroeconomic environment and the environment they're in as well as a business. So, yes. But why would you talk about that straight away? We don't even, you know, an SDR shouldn't be talking about three year contracts. They're just there to set the meeting. It's the salesperson's job to figure out if that if that's a viable option or. So if you're asking SDRs to talk about three-year contracts, then then you're asking them to do something that a buyer's... You're making it very easy to, for the buyer to say, no, I'm not interested in having a conversation with you. And you brought up neuroscience. I think the term is negative bias. Pe- people are more afraid to to lose than they get the thrill out of winning, right? Loss aversion, yeah. Right. So so it gets into risk, you know, risk averse. Why, why would they do a three-year deal now? Because, well... It's 2023, you know, they want to lock in that price. But then if they're strategic about it, they, you know what? A lot of discounts are going to be coming up. A lot of people are canceling. I want to renegotiate my three-year deal. We we did a show Mm -hmm. a few few weeks back. Do you see a lot of that going on? People want to take risk off the table. They say, you know what? I don't want to do the three years. I want to keep the same price, and I just want to have it for the rest of this year. What, you're, you're offering someone a three-year – have they been on the three-year deal prior to that? They've been on a three-year deal. They're getting hit with uh, business uncertainty. Their you know, negativity is flowing through their brain. And they say, you know what? I, I need to – I have a price discount because I did three years, but I want to reduce my risk, keep the same price, and only do have a year on it. That's not uncommon. Um, and I think the question you need to ask when someone says that to you is, at first they acknowledge it and say, okay, that, that makes sense. I mean, given the environment, given the pre- given the pressure that businesses are under, given the pressure that you're probably under with your CFO, um, you know, you don't want to make long-term investments right now because, quite frankly, you don't know what the long-term holds for you. Um, and so, it's only natural that you would request that one one-year reduction. What well, reduction to one year? Let's just talk about kind of what you're hoping doing that will do for you, right? Um, you know, and I would, I would, you know dig into why that's happening right but it's not just oh we want to reduce risk yes risk of what right let's talk about what those risks are let's map that out together right so what are the risks here x y z a b c whatever the the, and what usually happens is um it's there's a there's the perception of risk and then there's actual risk and the perception of risk is always higher than the actual risk and the gap is quite usually quite big so your job is to understand what is a real risk versus a perception of risk, identify and recognize the perception of risk, and then help the buyer realize that that perception 
is probably not accurate. It's actually this, and therefore, actually, the risk is far lower for you. Um, you know, if if a buyer, you know, the thing you would want to ask them is, well, look, do you see yourself moving away from someone like us after a year? Is it a question of just managing finances? Is it is it a financial problem? Is it something you have to show the CFO? You know, what else is a CFO interested in? Right? Are they interested in reducing expenses for the next three years, for example? Um, are they interested in retention of uh, quality talent, which is one of their top priorities? Right? Um, and, and you kind of want to figure out, okay, if you don't have the three years, what impact are going to have on all those things that the CFO is actually really prioritizing here? Because they're asking you as a line item to just do this, but the reality is that may not be the case. In fact, the line item may be a lot higher over the course of three years. So how nope. do we how do we present this to the CFO in a way that makes you look good? And actually, you're a custodian. You're showing them that you're you're disciplined and responsible and a, and and a custodian of the valuable assets in the business, which is its finance. Definitely, those conversations are happening. I would say lean into them and try to understand why, and then align it and see what impact will that have on the very things that the CFO is trying to accomplish. But they're probably doing it in a very blunt way. Um. But then even before that, the thing you probably want to figure out is, does your champion have the appetite to stick their neck on the line for you? Because the choices they make will have repercussions on their career and their income, their reputation. So the question here is, do they have the appetite to do so? And do they have a good reputation with the CFO? Are they seen as financially prudent, financially sensible, et cetera? Or are they seen as a bit loose, a bit of a loose cannon with their finances? Uh, you know, are they known as someone that comes to the finance person or the CFO with, um, you know, weird, unthought out and unstructured propositions uh, that really doesn't go anywhere, doesn't sound like it's going to be of value. And therefore, that champion is going to be met with cynicism every time they present something. So there are a few factors you kind of need to think about when it when it comes. It's not just simply saying, okay, let's deal with this objection, et cetera, and find a way to reduce the cost and make it. There's more to it than that. Um, well, you yeah, brought so, up you brought up you brought up risk and finances. Hmm. It would depend. I would assume that where in the business cycle is this company? Are they on the growth mode? Are they you know absolutely ca cashing out? Are there you know private equities in there? And, you know, they're trying to get rid of people or try to get rid of expenses to save people. Um, a couple of, uh, talk to me about a couple of your brands that you represent, your companies, because part of it is on the financial side, right? Yes. Yeah. So there are companies that are involved with, in banking and finance. So I, I have a client that provides consulting and, and software to uh, capital markets. So they work with big banks, venues and exchanges and things like that. Um, with, uh, I dealt with a company that provided um, uh, kind of revenue management software and platforms to FMCG companies. And you might think, well, what's that to do with finance? Well, everything, right? So um, uh, promotion optimization. So you know when you go into a store, uh, big brand supermarket, whatever it is, you will see promotions, discounts of brands, specific brands. Um, there's a huge amount that goes into that. They don't just go, oh, you know, we're selling this at you know twenty dollars. Let's reduce it by fifteen dollars. And you know, th there is a lot more that goes into it. And promotion optimization is the second largest line item on a typical FMCG's financial books. 
And so um, finance is integral to that process. It is incredibly rare for someone to sell a revenue management service or software and not have the CFO or a very fi senior financial person involved in that in that process. Um, so there's quite a few, quite a few business. I, I would argue that all business is related to finance, of course. But yeah, yeah. there are some brands and, and companies and industries I've been involved with where the CFO is integral to the to the process and the experience. Yeah, we're here to help people capitalize on key moments in their life. And, and what we mean by key moments is there are key moments in in your professional life that will uh, that creates a bifurcation point in in your in your in your life, right? So yeah, let's let's use less less fancy words. There's a you're at the a fork road, right? Mm -hmm. And the decision and the way you conduct yourself at that key moment will decide which which fork lane you go down. So if you look at sales. Um, they're really mainly if it's customer, new customer acquisition, then kind of mainly six or seven key moments that are integral to whether this is going to be a successful outcome or not. Right. There is the um, the initiation or the first sales meeting and how you conduct yourself at the beginning. There's the questioning process. There is the product demonstration. There's the value proposition. There's the stakeholder management. And there's even the process of the purchase itself, right? And how you go through the contract situation, et cetera. There are other key moments when it comes to account management, right? But it's not just sales. Um, we're dealing with founders and even people in R&D, for example, where there are key moments that can determine the success or failure of their, of their business and of their career. So with a founder, for example, um, there are key moments around uh, pitching with investors. Uh, there are key moments about deciding how to deal with conflict within your management team. There are key moments around, you know, when you're about to scale and a lot of founders don't come from a sales background, they come from a STEM background or a technical background. And then the questions they need to think about is, well, if I want to scale my sales team, what do I need to do first? Do I, the biggest mistake is people think they need to hire a, C, a chief revenue officer. Right. And that's a massive mistake. I had a client that lost millions by doing that because they had to buy that person out from their stake in the business. So, um, you know, what are the key moments in our growth journey and the decisions that we're making that we need to optimize for? Same with R&D. If, you, if you've if you've got a, a big enough innovation that you're excited about, at some point, you need to get your stakeholders, your internal stakeholders rallied around you because you're going to rely on them for the resources and time and money in order to make this a reality. So what is the key moment there and how are you how are you talking about it? The biggest barrier, well, not the biggest, one of the biggest barriers to growth, I think it was Bill Clinton that said, if your idea is big enough, then you're going to need more people with you on the journey. And the question you need to ask yourself is, how are you persuading those people so that they understand you and you understand them and together you understand the journey that you need to go on. And one of the biggest barriers is that lack of understanding, right? You're, you're not showing to the other person that you understand them, that you get them, because all pe people just want to be heard and understood, right? And in turn, are you describing the opportunity in a way that they understand you as well? And then together on that journey, you both understand where you're going. So that's what we're about as a business. We're, we're there to help help people to particularly founders of companies on those key critical moments in their growth journey. And, and it's those moments that will decide the direction for your business, because once they're gone, they're gone. Or at the very least, 
if they're gone, it's incredibly hard to get back to it again. Moeed, we have a lot of new people that just graduated college uh, this past December. They can't find a job and what their degree is in. So they're going to go into sales and they're going to research a company to work for. And there's a lot of startups out there. There's a lot of trans transitioning going on because 2023 is going to be a rough year. If you could give advice to somebody in a job transition, what would you have them look at on the balance sheet if they have the ability to do so to figure out if that company is a, a viable place to go work at? Meaning, will they have enough cash on hand to keep me around? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so I do this a lot. So for my alumni, um, I'm a, a mentor there. So I, I help students kind of figure out what they want to do with their career. But if if you are deciding to go down sales and you're thinking about a company, I mean, firstly, if you can access the finances, that's great. Um, some of these companies may be private businesses. Uh, and so what you'll want to do is look at their public competitors so that you can get an understanding by proxy. But let's say you do have access to the financial statement. Some of the things that you want to look at. So most people say go to revenue and see if they're growing. Um, uh, that shouldn't be the case. Uh, what you want to look at first is their what's called their liquidity ratio. Their liquidity ratio basically means um, when you look at the part of the financial statement called the balance sheet, the balance sheet basically tells you the health of the business, right? One aspect of the health of the business. You've got the assets and then you've got the liabilities. And within assets and liabilities, you will have uh, current assets, right? And you will have non-current assets or fixed assets. Um, the liquidity ratio is the, um, the ratio between current assets uh, versus the current liabilities. And what that basically means is current assets are things that are cash or will become cash in the next 12 months, right? Or in their financial period. And current liabilities are money that they owe to people, money they've got to pay. Um, now, if they have more current um, liabilities than they do current assets, it means that they owe more than they have. So the first thing that you want to look at is, can they run the business? Can they service their debts? Right. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is you want to look at the cash statement. And the reason why you want to look at a cash statement is you want to see, are they generating cash, right? You know, cash from operating activities is a really, really important one. Um, so look at the cash from operating activities and it's a line item. You'll see it right there. Um, if they're generating cash, it means that it, it means that someone have a healthy business. Um, then you want to look at um, their revenue growth, right? Are they growing? And more importantly, are they growing compared to their industry? So you can Google the industry name, whatever industry they're in, um, and look at you know industry reports. And you want to, what you want to look at is the CAGR, the compound annual growth rate. If a company, so if I was to say to you, company A is growing at 5%, company B is growing at 10%, on its own, it looks like company B is the healthier one. But if I was to say to you, company A is growing at 5%, but the rest of their industry is growing at only 1%, company B is growing at 10%, but the rest of their industry is growing at 20%, all of a sudden that gives you context. Company B doesn't look so hot right now. Um, so have a look at the revenue growth, but also look at the compound annual growth rate of the industry that they're in, because it will tell you if they're a high performer or not in the industry.
The next thing is if you're in sales, there's a line item. It's, it's the SGNA, the sales and general administration. You can actually see how much they're investing in sales and marketing. If they're investing a good amount in sales and marketing, it indicates that they believe in sales and marketing and they're willing to invest in it as part of their growth. And that doesn't tell, that doesn't tell you the whole story, but it does give you an indication um, of, you know, where, you know, how much they value sales in this company and how much they're willing to invest. Um, so on the financial aspect, those are kind of, without drowning you in information, those are kind of the, right, right. the core things that I would look at. What is cost to acquire a new customer and lifetime value? What, what, why is that important? Why would a kid coming out of college care about that in the SaaS business? If it, well, if it costs you more to acquire a customer than it is to keep them or the amount of revenue they're paying you, then you're a loss-making business. Right? I mean, that's, it's as simple as that. Um, the lifetime value of a, of a customer, um, if a customer's spending a £1,000 with you a year, um, and the average customer stays with you for three years, that's £3,000 over the course of the lifetime of that customer. But if it costs you in advertising and in sales personnel and software and all those things, if it costs you an average of £6,000 to get a new customer, then you're losing double, right? Oh, you're, you're losing 3000 yeah. So um, that shows you that, that you're dealing with an inefficient business. Now, there is a point... Now, you do have to look at the life cycle of the business, which is the point you made earlier. There are companies that right now, uh, they're pumping a lot of money into the business because you know they're, they're that rocket ship. They're, they're pumping it full of fuel to get it up to the moon. Um, and so have a look at the, the kind of stage in which the business is in. If it's early stage, then likelihood they're, they're willing to take that hit, at least at the earlier stage, because they know that they can actually increase the lifetime value of that customer, but you don't want it to be too much of disparity either. Um, so that tells you the efficiency by which they are acquiring customers and the, and the kind of profitability for doing so as well. Um, so they should care about that. It's really important um, because that, that yeah, it, it tells you a lot about the character of the business. If they the, the customer acquisition cost is through the roof and their lifetime value of the customer is really low, in which case there are two sides of that spectrum that seems to be missing, right? And they're suboptimal. So they should care about that. It's kind of hard to have the uh, founder make it through the whole cycle, isn't it? Because it's a land grab at the beginning. Don't really care about the cost. All I care about is the product. It starts with intention. You have founders that intend to change the world, right? Or, or change certain aspects of a community that they really care about. Um, and they're going to conduct themselves and treat their business very differently to someone that wants to make millions within five years and then just be, be one of those people that um, can say, hey, I, I built a business and I sold it for millions and now I'm sitting pretty they will treat their business and the approach of their business in very different ways. Um, so the intention is probably the really important thing to look at first. Now, there are some people that do want to have an exit plan, but their intention is to go about it in the right way. Right. So don't just look at the end outcome that they want. You know, everyone wants a better life for themselves. But look at look at the way that they're going about doing so and the intention by which they're doing that. So um I wouldn't say it's hard. 
I would say it's it's you know it might be difficult based if your intention is aligned in a in in, in an incongruent fashion. But there is no reason why, and there are plenty of examples of this, right? Ben, you know, Benioff is an example of that. There, there are loads of others where actually their intention was to create something long-term. Their intention was to create a change in society for the better. Yeah. You brought up Benioff. I'm sorry, I got I to gotta butt in. He, he's running into some uh, hard times now. Did you see that? Yeah, we all are, right? I mean, not all of us. But, well, no, I mean, he's got some yeah. investors, some activists coming in. I know, yeah. T t what's going on there? I, I, I'm not going to claim to be an expert into the life of Benioff. And what's well, that's why you're on the sassholes. Well, yeah, but <laughs> you, you know, you've got to know what you, you've got to be clear about what you know and what you don't know, right? So, um, you know, what's going on there? You know, the, they're obviously unhappy with the direction that he's taking the business and the way that the way that he's um and there, there are a few things there there are probably what i've heard about things in terms of some of the acquisitions and you know they're not they've not been fruitful in the way that they thought it would be um there are decisions around um certain elements with um you know costs real estate and things like that real estate right again these are decisions right right, right um right. so so they they will be but look, he's not the only one that's had to face activist investors, right? There will always be disagreements. And especially when you put intelligent people and people that have generated outcomes that they're proud of, if you put them in the room, they will be not just conflicting opinions, but there'll be very forceful communication of those conflicting opinions. Um, so there is no business that I know of that does not have difficult discussions with their investors. The question is, not the fact that there is a difficult and what's going on there. The question is, why is that happening? And what is the founder or CEO doing to address those concerns? Um, I remember an example of um, Warren Buffett in an investor meeting in one of the companies that he'd invested in. I think it was Coca-Cola at the time, but don't mm -hmm. quote me on that. Um, now, he had a choice to dissent. He held, he held the larger shares, right? right? Now, he had a choice to dissent, but he he decided and chose to abstain. Now, why did he do that? He abstained because he's he doesn't dislike the leadership team. He believes in them. He just didn't agree with maybe the direction or some of the decisions that they were making. And rather than create a hostile environment where he would dissent, he chose to abstain because it invited conversation. Um, and so that's an example of not the fact that there is dissension among the investors and they are unhappy with things. It's how do you deal with that? So I think I think what what I'm going to be looking at closely is how does he deal with the situation right now, um, and what are the decisions that he's going to make? But I mean, you find me one founder that has never had an issue with investors. It's just oh no, uh, they all have issues. That's why I said at the beginning. That's why they don't last from start to finish. Is this is Salesforce going into a a different cycle of a business where somebody's going to come in and just try to cash as much as they can out of it. Because do you think Microsoft is coming into play more with just LinkedIn and Excel? You know, that's kind of what, if you're going to go work at Salesforce, that's something you got to look at. You would also look at how, how Mark is dealing with that. Right. Um, you would also, you know, you want to look at how he's dealing with that. And then the other thing that I would question is, you know, you said start to finish. What is finish? Right. Uh, is private equity. Is it? Is it really finished? Well, 
<laughs> I see where you're going. Um, you know, what was what was that what was that saying? It was an old Greek saying where um clever people, I think I'm gonna paraphrase it, clever people uh plant trees, um uh plant plant trees in the right places. Wise people plant trees whose whose uh, you know whose shade they're not going to see. Something along those lines. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what is the finish? Because if if the situation comes where and I'm not going to speak for Benioff, but let's say the situation comes right. where any any CEO founders in a situation where the business has got to a level where, for whatever reason, they're unable to take it from that point on. So the question then becomes, what is that legacy they're going to create? What's that transition now? Um, and so the business hasn't finished. It's just your involvement in the business has finished, but its mission will continue. Um, and so, again, those are decisions that you need to make. So when you're looking for an investor, are you looking for just money? Or are you looking for smart money that has the resources that you really need that's actually going to be a value for you? Are you looking for just money? Or are you looking for someone that understands the values that you are creating within the business, understands the mission, and also understands the way in which you want to go about it? Right. This is not about... Um, you know, aggressive sales approaches because you know that your customers won't respond well to that. And you also know that that's just not you, right? That's just not, you're not living your life in an authentic way. However, there is nothing that says you can't approach sales in a different way that actually produces consistent growth, profitable growth, great customers that love you, that stay with you for years to come, customers that continue to spend more with you year on year, and customers that rave about you within their community, and they in turn become new customers for you, right? There's nothing to say that you can't go about that in a different way and get those kind of results. The problem is if you get the wrong investors that think you should be doing it a different way, that's going to cause conflict. And in fact, that's going to make you hate, hate the business, hate your role within business. I spoke to someone last week that was going through this, right? He he had a hundred and fifty million pound a year business. It went completely down to zero during COVID. He he pivoted the business and changed it, and capitalized on opportunities and on those key moments. And now he's brought it up to almost one hundred and fifty pound a year business again after just a couple of years. But his relationship with the investors has soured in such a way because he doesn't he can't gel with them, and they don't get him, and he doesn't get them that it's now caused him to kind of just say, do you know what? I just want out now. Right. Um, so it depends on the type of investors that you bring in. Now with a public business, it's a whole different set of complexities, but for a private business, you have a lot more power than you realize to decide which investors come on board. And it's not just about them interviewing you and assessing you if you have a viable business. It's you assessing them to see, uh, do they have the, uh, the viable resources and the type of, uh, culture and qualities and values that you hold dear as well so don't be so quick to just seek out money i know that's hard to say when things may be tight i'm, I'm not saying that right. i'm not saying that you should always do so i absolutely empathize i've been in that situation i've sat on the other side of the table as an investor where i've seen those situations but i can guarantee you that if you choose the wrong investor it will be worse than having the money that you want because you're going to be forced to do things that are violating your values. And that is a very painful place to be in. So I'm, I'm going to come at this from, from a, a neuroscience and behavioral psychology point of view. Um, okay. And we can extend this to sales as well, because I think sure. one of the questions we should definitely talk about is when you have that sales role, 
how do you need to think about it? Because there are so many mistakes that can set your career back by years. Uh, and and all you had to do was just have some advice on the right things to do. So we can talk about that. But yeah, on the nature of having dual CEOs, let's talk about this from a neuroscience behavioral standpoint. Um, ultimately, it, it, when it comes to the business, right, um, you've got to set a direction. And there are points where you're going to have to execute and you're going to have to execute fast, right? Speed is just so, so important in business right now. It doesn't mean speed of doing things in the wrong way, but when you figure out what you want to do, speed, I mean, that is what's going to give you a very big edge over the marketplace because things are just happening way too fast right now. Um, I, I think having dual CEOs, and if they have the same responsibilities and mandate, or very similar responsibilities and mandate that overlap a lot, you're going to create conflict. You're going to create a difference of opinion, which therefore requires more debate, more discussion. Um, there might be some bad feeling or resentment towards each other. Um, and it's like, it's like having a business where you have two investors and each of them hold a 50%, 50% share, right? There's a stalemate every time. Unless you agree on 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 everything but even those things that you agree on you'll be agreeing with them based upon the common uh, common denominator which is you know price lowest risk those kind of things and if you're growing a business if you just grow a business based upon the lowest price and the lowest risk you're not going to capitalize on on key moments and situations that that might take your business to the stratosphere um so uh, you know i've not been in a situation where i've been working with you know dual ceo structures but from a behavioral psychology and, and kind of human being interaction standpoint, um, it will cause stalemates. And that, those stalemates will slow down the not just the decisions, but more importantly, the executions that you have to make. Because if you have a competitor that is very clear, they have one person that's kind of making the ultimate decision or helping steer the business. Right. It might be consensus driven. Don't get me wrong. But in a conflict situation or when when there's, you know, when there's a disagreement, that CEO is going to help make sure that there is some form of agreement or they will say, look, at some point we've got to make a decision. It may not be ideal, but this is what we need to do. Can we have everyone on board? Can we just make sure we make a decision here? And I think if you have two power, powerful people at the head, you're just not going to be able to have those honest discussions unless they have an incredible relationship. But, but they may have an incredible relationship now, but they may not do so in three to five years time because things can change. Um, so I, I I don't know why they had those dual CEO situations. Yeah. Why not a CEO and a COO, right? Um, for example, um, but you know it's going to cause and, and it's not just about conflict; it's stalemate. I think yeah. stalemates are the things that are going to kill you more than anything else because it's inaction. Moita Min, thank you for coming on the Sassel's podcast. What's the best way for our uh, customers to to learn more about you? So first and first and foremost, LinkedIn. Uh, so forward slash Moed Amin. Um, I talk a lot about sales uh, and the science of, of persuasion. Um, you can also check out my website, proverbialdoor.com. Um, we talk about you know the key moments uh, that you have as a founder or a salesperson or an R and D person, uh, and and you know how you persuade people and bring them on the journey with you. Um, 
and you can also check out um, the podcast as well, right? So there's, there's the Persuasion Lab podcast, and there's also the Proverbial Door YouTube channel. And actually, on the Proverbial Door YouTube channel, we, we have over 100 videos um, that are around financial acumen. So we, we help people understand the language of business, which is finance, by analyzing the financial statements of uh, famous, well-known and public companies. So, so you can also analyze your clients, your partners, you know, whoever it might be uh, more quickly and more accurately so that you can draw some incredible insights, which goes into your hypothesis, which is a key moment in the sales, uh, sales interaction. Moe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. DemandFarm.com. Unlock key account growth with DemandFarm's large deal, key account, and relationship intelligence products. Go to DemandFarm.com now to schedule a demo. Ask for Iron Man. Brent Keltner's Winalytics Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass. In five hours over five weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team build the mindset and skills for a new buyer environment. Kickoff and product-driven selling versus authentic conversations for all go-to-market teams. Team-level sessions for self-assessment and team dialogue. All go-to-market team wrap-up to identify top go-to-market strategy adjustments. Go to winalytics.com now.